Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Max Wilbert. He's a third-generation organizer who grew up in Seattle's post-WTO anti-globalization undoing racism movement. He's a co-founder of the group Deep Green Resistance and a longtime board member of a small grassroots environmental nonprofit with no employees and no corporate funding. His first book, a collection of pro-feminist and environmentalist essays, was recently released. He's also the co-author of the forthcoming book, Bright Green Lies, with Derek Jensen, that's me, and Lear Keith, which looks at the problems with mainstream so-called solutions, such as solar panels, electric cars, recycling, and green cities. The book makes the case that these approaches fail to protect the planet and aim at protecting empire from the effects of peak oil and ecological collapse. So first, thank you for your decades of good work, and also thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much, Derek. It's really great to be here. Thanks. Um, so tell me about your new book, which is um, which is called Voices of Resistance. Um, tell me about it. Sure, yeah. So about five or six months ago, my friend Boris Forkel, who you know as well, who lives in Germany and does some organizing work there with Deep Green Resistance, he contacted me and said, hey, I'm interested in putting together a collection of your essays into a book form. Uh, and I was very flattered, and he um, he wanted to take the idea and run with it. And so he's now done so, and it's published. I have some copies here at home and have been uh, giving a few to friends and family and selling a few to people who are interested in buying them. And um, so it's, it's now published, and this essay collection is about... 200 pages long, and it includes essays written over a five- or six-year period between 2013 and uh, this year. And so I'm only 30 years old, so 2013 was quite a while ago for me. So this sort of spans a a period, and one thing that's kind of interesting, I think, about the, the collection is you can sort of see my political evolution over time as my ideas become more solid. And I, one thing that you said years ago, Derek, that I still remember is that you said, I don't agree with everything that I've ever written. And I thought, I thought that was so great because in this era of social media and books and everything is recorded, uh, oftentimes people are really taken to task for things that they wrote or believed in the past. And, I don't necessarily agree with everything that I ever wrote in the, that's in this this collection, but I do think it's really interesting to to look at the essays over that span of time and see how they've changed. You know who the person is who really uh, is my hero for uh, changing his mind is Lewis Mumford. That he was very pro technology in the 1930s, and then along came World War II, and he realized, huh. Maybe there are some problems with uh, sort of the modern machine-based society. Um, so I, I have gained great, great courage from watching him do it. Wow, and he had quite a flip there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. I, I was actually talking to somebody the other day who was at a booth promoting solar power, and uh, one of the things I said was that. You know, I used to be a big believer in, in solar energy. When I was a teenager, 
you know, global warming was becoming a much bigger issue in the news, and I was reading a lot about it, and I could see that none of the older people, none of the political leaders were doing anything about it. And so that was the one, you know, one of the few solutions that was presented to me that was out there in the in the press. And so, you know, I, I grabbed onto that as a lifeline, and now I've flipped 180 degrees. So let's talk about what's wrong with solar in a little while, but, but I would like to talk more about your book first. And what, what would you say is the overarching, if you had to condense the book into two sentences, uh, what would they be? What, what is your book about? Well, I would say, I had to condense it down. The real, the real points that I'm trying to, to hammer home are, First, that industrial global society is destroying the planet. And that's an unimpeachable fact. Nobody can avoid that reality anymore. And the second part of that sentence is that nothing that has been done thus far to address that problem is working. So whether you're looking at political solutions or petitions or technological solutions, efficiency and so on, activism in general, none of it's working because in the big picture, everything's still getting worse. And so given that, how do we address these problems? How do we stop the destruction of the planet, which I think is intimately tied in with racism, with patriarchy, with white supremacy, with capitalism, with all these other systems of power. And so that that's what the book is about, is exploring how do we address these issues. And you know, my background, you said in my bio in the intro that I grew up in Seattle in the post-WTO era and gained political consciousness during that period. And it was a good time to, to, to get that education because there was sort of a ferment of radical and revolutionary political ideas circulating in the community there. And so I would say that I've been a revolutionary person for a long time. Uh, and so this book is sort of trying to explore some of those ideas in more depth and look at uh, a variety of ways that they can be addressed. And if you'd like, maybe we could dive in now and, and speak about some of the individual essays. Sure. Um, would you like to start with um, the essay of We Choose to Speak, or would you rather start with the essay of the everyday violence of modern culture? Uh, let's start with the everyday violence of modern culture. That's a, that's a fun one for me. Okay. Uh, fun, quote-unquote. This essay I wrote in, I think, 2014, 2015, and it picked up a lot of steam. And basically my goal was just to tell a story of an everyday life in this culture and how we're always surrounded by violence. So maybe I can read a little section here from it. Great. So, quote, First you wake up on top of a foam mattress, off-gassing toxic VOCs that will not biodegrade in 10,000 years. That's volatile organic compounds. You sit up and put on your clothes, all with tags reading Bangladesh and Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. These clothes were made by virtual slaves. You walk downstairs and fill a glass with water from the tap. The water comes from a local river that was dammed 127 years ago. 
Ever since, native species in the watershed have been in decline. You drink the water. You pour yourself a bowl of cereal. The cereal is made of wheat and corn, grown in what was once the tall grass prairie of the eastern Great Plains. 99% of that habitat, millions of acres, was plowed and utterly destroyed to grow these crops. The soil is also gone now. Your meal is only possible through fossil fuel fertilizers. You add milk. It comes from a factory farm nearby, where cattle are packed next to each other in squalor and pumped full of antibiotics and RBGH, genetically modified growth hormone, to increase production. The cows are in pain. Their imprisonment is fouling the land around them. The cereal tastes good. It's almost time for work, so you walk down to your car. You're somewhat environmentally conscious, so you bought an electric car. It makes you feel a lot better. The car has a thousand pounds of lithium-ion batteries under the hood. The lithium for these batteries was strip-mined in the Peruvian desert. The pollution and land destroyed by the mine has devastated local people's traditional livelihoods. You get inside the car and start the engine. It's a push-button startup system. There's a fancy LCD screen inside. It's modern and sleek. You pull away from the curb. You drive on paved streets to your destination. Under those streets are indigenous burial grounds. There used to be thick old-growth forests here. Now it's a trendy, up-and-coming neighborhood. There are a few rundown houses here and there. The poor people used to live in this neighborhood and are being forced to move, many after generations here. They're just the latest set of refugees that have walked through this place. And so just to skip on towards the end of the article, uh, I, I write, This was a very partial description of the violence in modern society. Make no mistake, this is a war. When we are honest about the level of violence in this culture, not resisting becomes a sickening thought. And so in the essay, after this section that I just read, I, I continue. So the person drives to their work, which is at a hospital, and the hospital was built on a meadow that was destroyed to build this massive building. And I talk about the, uh, the oil that's used to make the paints, the pesticides that are used all around the building, um, the native habitat that was destroyed to, uh, you know, to make the parking garage. I talk about the old growth forests that were cut down to make the chipboard and particle board furniture in the waiting room, the materials in the computers and where those came from. And so the idea is just to help people understand the amount of violence that we're surrounded by all the time in this culture. If you look at the origin of basically any artifact of this civilization, then you'll find a trail of devastation in the wake. It seems that what you're talking about is recognizing context and recognizing chains of supply. You know, right. in, some, in some ways, you have just uh, described much of our book, Bright Green Lies, because uh, that book, you know, it's great. I've got, you know, groovy solar panels here. This is wonderful. I've got a groovy electric car. But then when you follow back the chain of supply, you find that it's intimately associated with and necessarily associated with, um, you know, destruction in Mongolia, uh, destruction in South America, like you were saying. And that's inherent in in all of these processes. 
Right. Yeah, and I think the important thing for me, too, is to think about it systematically because people like to isolate these individual things. You know, I was talking to that that solar panel person I mentioned a minute ago, and he was saying the, the biggest benefit that he feels from having solar panels on his house in the woods in, in southern Oregon is that he feels really independent and separated from the grid. And I said, okay, well, that's fine, but what about the solar panel production facility? What about the global supply chain that exists to mine the silicone, silicon, smelt it, uh, fabricate that into solar panels, assemble it, and deliver it to your location? You can't just say, I feel independent uh, and completely ignore that part of the equation, but nonetheless, that's what the mainstream environmental movement and really most people in this culture are doing on a day-to-day basis. So I think once you start to trace those supply chains, then you start to get a sense that, oh, these aren't sort of unnecessary byproducts of the modern way of life. This is really fundamental to the structure of this civilization. And it's not even really dependent on technology. I mean, you can you can go back to ancient Rome, for example, and, and look at their food supply, and they're, they're largely getting their grain from North Africa with agricultural practices that completely destroyed the, the northern coastline and the northern plains of Africa, this very, very extractive model of, of agriculture. And that was what fed the empire. That was what kept the armies marching. So obviously there are plenty of examples of cultures that haven't lived in that extractive, destructive way, but I think we need to think about it systematically in order to to see that the problems aren't isolated, they're not technical problems, they're broad structural problems. You know, have you noticed that oftentimes if you say, you know, solar panels are destructive or, you know, choose whatever example you want, um, have you noticed that oftentimes people respond by saying well why don't you just kill yourself <laughs> yeah. this, this huge jump from pointing out that something required slavery to um to, to suggesting you kill yourself I, I, i'm sure that's happened to you right yeah and a similar one again to continue the story of this guy i was talking to about solar because this was just this past weekend uh we were chatting for a while. I was trying to figure out the root of his beliefs, and and he said something like, "If we growth is going to continue and accelerate and get faster, we're going to have population growth. We're going to have expansion of the society. So, given that, let's use solar to reduce the amount of harm." And and my response is, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Given that, if you if you give up that point, then." You're, you've lost everything. I mean, there is no use fighting at that point. So that's what these people are thinking is because they're not willing to deal, they're not really willing to grapple with those fundamental issues of growth and with the, the sort of death culture uh, imperative that this empire, this global civilization is running on or has at its core. Because they're not willing to grapple with that core idea, in a serious way, then their only options are either kill yourself or work on these 
harm reduction, quote unquote, approaches that are really tepid and often end up, almost always just end up supporting the system rather than, you know, reducing impacts. So, given all this, what what do you propose? Or, or would you rather, and maybe this is what you propose, do you want to talk about your next essay? Sure. So, um, I'll, I'll jump through two here real quick. Um, this, there's an essay in here called Utah, the next energy colony. And I wrote this in 2013 at the time I was living in Utah. And I was involved in resistance to a tar sands extraction project in northeastern Utah in what's called the Uinta Basin, uh, which is a region of a massive amount of oil extraction, uh, fracking, the air quality in the Uinta Basin, which is this very rural county. I'd be surprised if the population is over 15, 20,000 in a, in a, a large one or two county area. Uh, the infant, the air quality is worse than Los Angeles and the infant mortality is off the charts. Uh, and it's because of these type of operations, especially the fracking. But, uh, they, they've got a tar sands project in there that companies have been trying to figure out how to extract in a profitable way for a long time. And just recently news broke about a, a new, uh, project by the company Enefit, which is an Estonian company, to do 13,000 acres of strip mining in this region, northeastern Utah. Uh, and this one project would produce 200 million tons of greenhouse gases, which is the equivalent of 50 coal-fired power plants per year. Uh, it's one of the most carbon-intensive fuels on Earth. So... Given that the oil companies are, are going to these sort of last dregs of the oil that they can find on the planet, it's no surprise to me that solar and wind are increasingly popular because they're just looking for any sort of power to, to fuel their empire. Um, Stop for a second. Make yeah. that, can you take, can you do like two paragraphs on that right there? Because I think that's a hugely important point. Sure, yeah. So one of the things that I always love to say about this is, Barack Obama had an energy policy that was called the all of the above energy policy. And by that, he meant that his government was going to facilitate and, and work to promote uh, oil extraction, fracking, coal, natural gas of, of all sorts, as well as hydro, wind energy, solar energy. They wanted it all. And, and I actually think this is the most rational policy for an empire to have. When you contrast that with the Republicans, and, you know, for example, Trump, one of the first things he did was slash some of the subsidies for solar manufacturing in this country. And that's not a very rational policy. It's, it's an ideological position that the Republicans are taking because that's sort of the culture that they've created is this intentionally anti-environmental, quote-unquote, culture. But in reality, I think the Obama policy is, is actually worse in a lot of ways because empires are powered by energy. There's a, there's a professor out of the University of Utah, a climate scientist named Tim Garrett, who created a, uh, 
climate model that basically looks at industrial civilization as a heat engine. And the more energy you put into it, the more pollution and destruction it creates. And that model has actually been more accurate than a lot of the other climate models that are being used uh, in the in the climate science realm. So, again, I think the all-of-the-above energy policy is the most rational policy if you're trying to grow the economy, expand population, expand consumption, and increase the power of your empire. And... Uh, so to me, it's no surprise that as oil supplies become increasingly uh, stretched and as oil companies are forced to move further and further to the fringes in search of you know, deep water drilling in the oceans and tar sands and oil shale and fracking, all of these things are very expensive. They have low margins. It's no surprise that wind and solar and other so-called renewable energy sources are booming because it's highly profitable and this society needs energy to run everything, data centers. The U.S. military is is actually a big promoter of so-called green energy because it allows uh, military bases to be more self-sufficient and not as dependent on fuel convoys, which have been a major target in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. So anytime the U.S. military is on board with a technological quote-unquote solution, then I think we need to be really wary of that. So what you're suggesting is is that uh, the rise in subsidies for wind and solar is not, propaganda aside, so much a response to global warming as it is a response to ever-increasing energy demands along with uh, the um, peak production of easily accessible oil. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at... There's a professor here at the University of Oregon. Uh, I live near Eugene in Western Oregon. There's a professor here, Richard York, who's done a lot of research on this, and most people assume that if you bring online a solar energy generation facility, that allows you to turn off a fossil fuel power plant, for example, because that's the goal after all, right? That's what people assume is the goal. That's the stated goal. Right. But the, the reality is that there is essentially very little to to no displacement. That's what this effect is called. So in practice, in order to turn off, say, a fossil fuel power plant, you have to bring on 11 times that amount of power in so-called green energy, wind and solar and so on. And what that means in practice is that the fossil fuels aren't getting turned off at all. The new so-called green energies are just being added on top of what was already there. So once again, it's just all about escalation and growing the system. It's not about trying to protect the planet in any way. So thank you for that. And I interrupted you a long time ago when you were talking about uh, the Uintah Basin. Yeah, so I, I can just read a, a quick excerpt from that article. Looking out across a landscape that might soon be a wasteland, my gaze wanders across the juniper, scrub oak, and sagebrush that wrap gently over the hillsides and drop into the valleys. 
The setting sun casts waning light on the treetops, and a small herd of elk climbs a ridge in the distance and disappears into the brush. Overhead, the few clouds in the broad sky fade from red to deep purple, then to darkness. The last birds of the day sing their goodnight songs, and the stars begin to appear, thousands of them, lighting up the night sky and casting a dull glow across the countryside. I take a deep breath, tasting the cool night air spiced with the scents of the land. The bats are out, flitting about, snatching tasty morsels out of midair. I can hear their voices. They are calling to me. Tiny voices carrying across miles to whisper in your ear like the tickle of a warm breeze. Fight back, they say. Please fight back. This is our home. We need you to do what it takes to stop this. Whatever it takes to stop this. So when I when I wrote that article, the, the place that I wrote about the actual was actually right next to the mine, which at the time was only about three acres. It was a test a test mine. Since then, it has expanded to, I believe, over a hundred acres, and has destroyed all the locations that I was writing about in that article. So. Like I said, things are getting worse. You know, a, a question I ask all the time is if Delta Smelt could take on human manifestation, how long would the pumps on the Sacramento River last? Or um, if sea turtles could take on human manifestation, how long would the factories producing plastic last? And it seems that so much of our response to the murder of the planet is so disconnected. Um, you know, I, I see a lot that, that for the longest time people were uh, sort of denying the analysis that, that you make here. And the analysis that seems so obvious that this culture is inherently destructive and that the people of I mean there are people who've seen it all the way back to Tertullian and before and and it seems that so often when people get to the stage of actually doing what's necessary to protect bats or the Colorado River or delta smelt or sea turtles there is at the last moment a failure of connection just interrupt me anytime interrupt. you want yeah and that's actually in some ways what the next article is about um, this is an article I wrote this previous winter called Lost in Pocatello and the article is basically about unpleasant work um, I, this past winter, I went up to the Buffalo Field Campaign base camp in Montana, right on the border of Yellowstone National Park, where they worked to protect the last remaining migratory buffalo from destruction, uh, which is largely being perpetrated by the National Park Service. And... As part of getting up there, I didn't have access to a car 
flights were incredibly expensive. There was no bus option or any sort of public transit option. So I rented a car to, to Pocatello, a one-way car, and I, I drove it up there, arrived early in the morning, and then my friends who were also going up to the camp were going to pick me up. So I dropped the car at the uh, at the rental place, and this article sort of tells the story of what happened next, which is that I had, you know, eight hours or something to kill in Pocatello, which if you've been in Pocatello in February, it's not it's not the most happening place. And uh, I had a big backpack and a second backpack and this big box of food that I was bringing up there. And, and uh, so I got lost walking around the city, and I ended up walking for miles and miles and getting exhausted and hungry and... The wind was just whipping through there. I kept dropping my box. Long story short, it was just really uncomfortable. It wasn't that big of a deal in the end. I was totally fine. But the the theme of the article, or the reason I wrote it, is to impress on people that a lot of the work in organizing in resistance is not that exciting. It's not that glamorous. A lot of it is just really hard and tedious. Sometimes it's traveling and not sleeping. Sometimes it's writing. You know, sometimes it's meetings or moderating conflicts. Sometimes it's training. And the point of this work, of this essay, is to help prepare people to put in that real hard work without without glamorizing things. And, you know, we live in such a culture of self-gratification and, you know, short-term thinking that most people aren't willing to make sacrifices. And I think most people are just so traumatized, too, it's hard to even think about resisting. I think a lot of people just want to be at home in their bed, in their safe place and, uh, and not get out there and do anything. You know, decades ago now I saw, I think it was Michael Parenti. Uh, gosh, this is like 91 or something. He was doing, he was talking about the stuff Michael Parenti talks about and he did this aside where he just starts complete goes off on comic books, and his complaint <laughs> was that he thought that uh, superheroes are basically a neoliberal model of problem solving. Oh yeah, in that it's one individual. Most of us don't do anything. Most of the people in Gotham is Gotham the one with Batman. Yeah. So most of the people in Gotham don't do anything, and they leave. Batman to sort of have all these techno fixes and to solve all the problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you could look at Iron Man as another great example of that. It's this sort of neoliberal libertarian fantasy of the, the ultra-rich misogynist asshole CEO saves the whole world with his money, basically. Wait, did you just say Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> no, no, uh, no, I, I'm not sure what you misheard there, but I was talking about, uh, Iron Man. Oh, no, no, I think what I heard correctly was a, a rich person saving the world, uh, oh, libertarian yeah. saving the world. That's, that's, no, I'm, oh. I'm glad to say I haven't, I haven't read Alice Shrugged, so that's why that went over my head. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, you know, this reminds me of, there's a great line by Kathleen Dean Moore where she, if you ask her what can one person do in terms of stopping the murder of the planet, she always responds, 
don't be one person. And what yeah. she means by that is organizing. So can you talk about organizing a little bit? Sure. So uh, one quick point on that that I'll make, and then I'll jump ahead to a whole essay that's about it. But one of the essays in this collection is sort of a book reflection on a book called I Write What I Like, which is about Steve Biko and the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, Biko is the anti-apartheid organizer in South Africa who was killed at age 30 after being beaten severely by the police while he was in custody. And uh, so this is the quote. A number of organizations now currently fighting against apartheid are working on an oversimplified premise. They have taken a brief look at what is and have diagnosed the problem incorrectly. They have almost completely forgotten about the side effects and have not even considered the root cause. Hence, whatever is improved as a remedy will hardly cure the condition. And I think that that's a great quote to throw out whenever we talk about organizing, because from the beginning, if we're organizing around those false premises, if we have not considered the root cause, then our organizing is not even going to lead us in the right direction. Um, so I have a whole essay in here about organizing. Let me pull that up. So I, I, this, this essay is called 15 Points on Organizing. And I can just share a few of the points. Like I say in this article... I'm by no means an expert, but I have gained some experience, so this list is not to be considered definitive or faultless by any means, but this is a few things that I feel like I've learned. So point one, reliable, self-motivated people are irreplaceable. One solid person is worth a dozen who don't follow through on commitments or who never act with initiative. Two, beware of abusive and toxic people, as well as those who have nothing to bring but drama and distraction. Set boundaries. Okay, hold on a second. Um, years ago, I had a, uh, I had two surgeries done at Scripps Green Clinic in um, just north of San Diego. And one of the things that blew me away is every single person from janitor to surgeon to everybody else was remarkably kind. And when I go into the local hospital, um, the sometimes the technicians are pretty nice, but a lot of times, a lot of the people there just aren't very nice. Right. And so I've been I've thought a lot about institutional personality, and you know we've all experienced this where you go to one store. And everybody's always really nice. You go to another store, and, and quite often people are not so nice. And I happen to be at a board meeting. This is going to have a point. I happen to be at a board meeting. Where I, was, I was asked to be at a board meeting for Patagonia. And everybody there seemed really nice. And I had a chance to talk to their human resource manager about this exact question. Yes. And he was saying that what's that, that basically it's really crucial that you choose the right people in the first place. Yeah. That for them, creating a culture, sure, it starts with people being nice to each other in general, but also when you recruit new members, one of your, uh, one of your, um, criteria, one of, one of your goals has to be 
to make sure that the people who come in are going to fulfill numbers one and two. I'm just, there's a long way of saying that I think that what you're saying is, is, is absolutely, absolutely crucial. I think that's more important than technical skills. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long distraction. No, thanks for that. So just to, I can throw out a few more of these and then maybe we can move on. But, um, number three is social skills are profoundly important for organizing. Cultivate these skills. Avoid stereotyping or dismissing people based on their lifestyle, job, or any first impression you may have. Um, let's see. Number seven is humility, respect, and appreciation for others are the foundation of relationships. Shared hardship, struggle, and joy are the mortar that cements these bonds. Build friendships and caring relationships with the people you organize with. Number eight is do what you say you will do. Follow up on commitments and responsibilities. Don't give your word lightly. Uh, number 12 is sometimes you have to take risks. Number 13 is never stop learning. Deepen your wisdom and plan to become an elder and mentor as you age. And then number 15, the last one, is be so stubborn they will never stop you. Never give up. So those, those are a few of the points, but with that article, I was just aiming to give people some really concrete uh, recommendations for how to approach organizing the mental attitude to, to, to bring to it and a few practical pieces of advice as well. You know, I was thinking about number seven, the one about uh, build friendships and caring relation with the people you organize with. That reminds yeah. me of something that Vince, Vince Emanuele says that uh, he says – Somebody will call up and say, hey, do you want to go to a protest? And he'll respond, we haven't been to lunch. <laughs> yeah. The point is he wants to know who you are before he goes to a protest with you. And I think there, there's something to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's about trust. I mean, when you're talking about engaging in serious political work, then you really need to have a high level of trust for people. And that's a huge barrier in today's atomized society when Everyone spends more time with their machines than they actually do with each other. And that's not our individual fault, really. Of course, that's what the society is set up to do. Alienate us all and get us all addicted to the screens and so on and break down these social relationships. But, uh, you know, people, people buy more when they're unhappy. So it strengthens the system. <laughs> So we have about ten minutes left. Do you want to talk about one or two more essays, and then we'll then we'll start to start to give conclusions? Sure. Let's see. So the next essay that I'll talk about here is a quick one, which is the importance of skills and equipment for resistance movements. And one of the things that's kind of interesting to me about this essay collection is, you know, there's a saying in military strategy that. Um, what is it? It's something like um, those with those with no experience talk about strategy. Uh, those who have a moderate level of experience, and those who are highly experienced talk about logistics. And Wait, can you back up because basically the, the Skype crapped out for a second. Sure, sure, sure. So, so can the you quote say that quote again. The quote is something like. Um, those without experience talk about strategy. Those with a little bit of experience talk about tactics. And those with a lot of experience talk about logistics. And the basic idea is that, you know, it's easy to talk about how something might happen, but 
uh, once you're getting down to the actual boots on the ground logistics of how exactly we're going to carry it out, steps A, B, C, D, how's everyone going to eat, how are they going to get to where they need to be, where's everyone going to sleep, uh, what sort of supplies and skills do we need, then you're really getting to the meat of, of what you're trying to do. And so that's one thing that's interesting to me about this essay collection is over time I can see my work shifting from the more theoretical sort of big picture stuff to more focused logistical uh, work. And that's what this essay is about. It's This essay starts with looking at, for example, Standing Rock. So many people were watching the news at Standing Rock, and what you saw was giant crowds of protesters and resistance figures and the police and the National Guard and the BIA and all the other uh, federal agencies on the other side. And the difference in the amount of training and skills and equipment is stunning in those situations. The, the cops have their communication systems, their radios, they have their weapons, their armor, they have vehicles, they have command and control networks, they have crowd control, they have stingray devices, they have helicopters, they have SWAT teams. And meanwhile, most of the protesters have pants and a t-shirt, basically, maybe a cell phone. And so this essay is all about how we need to work to even the playing field by gaining real skills and uh, acquiring and practicing with equipment that's necessary to be more effective in conflict situations. And especially when you're talking about an asymmetric conflict where one side has much more power than the others, um, which is pretty much every situation that we're going to find ourselves in, then we really need to be prepared. And uh, that's something that we that we haven't really seen uh, from resistance movements thus far. And I think if we're starting to talk about moving from protest and, you know, making our voice heard to actual resistance and revolution, then we need to start talking about supplies and equipment and skills. You know, I'm thinking, of a, couple, I'm thinking of a couple quotes um, having to do with the quartermaster question. One of them, three quotes, maybe four. One of them is um, the classic, you know, an army fights on its stomach. Right. Um, another one was uh, two by Rommel. One of them, I believe he said something like, um, most battles are won by the quartermaster. Mm, yeah. And then another is uh, um, when two soldiers, this is Rommel. When two soldiers are fighting, uh, the one who put the extra cartridge in his uh, rifle is the one who wins. Yeah. And um, the last one, I can't remember the last one now, but they're all saying the same thing. Right. It, it sort of leads to, I mean, everything we're talking about is leading to the question of moving toward a serious resistance movement moving moving away from moving to use a cliche moving out of our comfort zones and into into serious resistance right it seems to me that that's much of what your essays are about yeah and just to highlight that probably the most risque article in this collection 
is the one called Ecological Special Forces. And this essay is about the need for people to operate in a professional, even military-like fashion for effective resistance, and especially similar to how Special Forces commandos operate, given that these groups are usually operating in a situation where, uh, at least locally, it's an asymmetric situation. They're outnumbered and they don't control the area. So the first official commando units were created in the 1940s by the British military, but they were just emulating people who had been doing it for a long time. They drew a lot of direct inspiration from Palestinian fighters who were able to tie down these large, much more powerful Imperial British Army units in the 1930s. And so this article looks at what are the characteristics of these uh, of special forces units, and it's things like physical fitness, training in infantry weapons, a focus on stealth, comfortability operating in the darkness and in all kinds of weather, uh, capable of operating on the water, flexible and self-directed, uh, operating in small units. You know, I think that that's a really interesting case study when you look at something like Standing Rock, where you have thousands and thousands of people coming from all over the country to participate in this resistance. And many of the most effective direct actions that were taken against the pipeline were done by groups of five to ten people, or even less in many cases. So oftentimes smaller is, is better. Um, and again, the, the, the commandos or special forces units, they really focus on things like target selection and, uh, and intelligence, having the right information at the right time to make the critical decisions. Um, so I think that we need to start thinking more like revolutionaries. And one of my favorite quotes for in regards to this is from Michael McFarlane, who was a, a Rhodes Scholar, who was a professor at Stanford, and he was on the National Security Council. And the quote is, Beforehand, all revolutions seem impossible. In retrospect, all revolutions seem inevitable. And I love that quote because when it seems impossible, what it, which it often does to me, I go back to that quote and I, and I hope that, you know, in a year or in five years or in 10 years or 50 years, people will be looking back and saying it was inevitable that some people were going to take things into their own hands and dismantle this global industrial empire because it was murdering the planet. And that was the only option that people had for survival. So some people were brave enough and smart enough to organize and make it happen. So thank you so much for that. Two things before we close. One of them is um, how can people uh, get this book? And the second is, how can people join you in this struggle? Well, if people want to learn more about the book and order a copy, uh, my website is maxwilbert.org. My last name is W-I-L-B-E-R-T, Wilbert. So people can connect with me there. Um, and the other way that people can support or get involved is to check out the group Deep Green Resistance. I would really recommend people do that. I want people to give moral support, but I want people to go beyond that. I want people to take responsibility for learning the skills themselves necessary for carrying out effective resistance, to normalize those skills in our community, and to really build a true revolutionary sentiment and to take action. Well, thank you so much for all that, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. 
My guest today has been Max Wilbert. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio and Progressive Radio Network. 